Shall we just bow our heads in prayer as we prepare for Duncan's sermon this morning? Father God, we just thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we thank you, Lord, that we can come here today to worship you in perfect freedom. And we know that there are many people in the world who can't do that. We pray for an anointing on the message which Duncan will bring us. What he says today in this service, may it glorify your name. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Bible reading, Steve Hodge. Our um, main reading today is uh, Genesis chapter 3, the whole chapter, so um, I'm on the end of a cold, so I hope my voice holds out all right, but I think we'll be right. Uh, you can follow along in your Bibles and the words will be up on the screen. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the, tree, the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labour, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife 
and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, week two of our prayer series, uh, before we get to Genesis 3, I'm going to talk a little bit about, um, well, we're going to be thinking this week about the whole issue of cynicism. Now, Aussies love cynicism, right? It's kind of our national pastime to be cynical. Um, I took you on a bit of a tour of my, my childhood last week. We went back to... Um, some of the cartoons that I used to read. Well, I, you know, it won't, this won't last long, so bear with me, but I've picked out some more. Um, are, there, are there any Garfield fans out there? You used to read Garfield comics? Yeah. So Garfield was like the epitome of cynicism. You know, it's just this world-weary cat who's totally cynical about everything. Um, here's a couple of uh, my favourites. There he is, looking grumpy. And John comes along, he says, why so grumpy? And then he moves on. Pause. I'll think of something. <laughs> uh, or this one. Here we go. Maybe John's right. Maybe I am too cynical. Maybe the world isn't as stupid as I think. And then Oddie comes along. You know, the dog Oddie comes along and Garfield says, nah, pushes him off the edge of the table. Uh, I mean, if you're anything like me, that kind of tickles my funny bone and it, it, it speaks to something within me and it, it is kind of... Uh, there's something really... Um, uh, nice, I think, and attractive about that kind of um, that kind of humour. But we're going to return to this issue of cynicism and distrust, and, and the whole question of prayer. Um, and we're going to think about this through the lens of the Bible passage that was just read to us, and how that plays itself out through the Bible. At the whole issue of why we don't pray, why we don't pray. Um, before we get there, though, I do want to acknowledge that it is quite a complex question, I think, this one. Um, if, uh, those of us who have struggled or are currently struggling with mental health issues like anxiety and depression, um, uh, you'll know that there, there are times when you just cannot put the words together. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, if that's you, you'll know that uh, sometimes the best thing to help your prayer life might be not to engage in kind of intense introspection, but just to book a doctor's appointment and get out and get some exercise in the sunshine. Um, 
Another factor, though, in, in all of this about why this perhaps... Uh, uh, about our, how we experience prayer. Another factor, though, is not only those kind of issues, but a more natural issue um, about the fact that as we, we as created beings go through natural highs and lows. Um, there's a great passage from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. Um, people are familiar with The Screwtape Letters. It's this imaginary, imaginative kind of world that C.S. Lewis creates where a um, senior devil called Screwtape is writing to his junior devil, Worm, uh, Wormwood, um, and uh, giving him advice about tempting his kind of um, his patient. Um, and uh, I won't go into all the details, but um, Wormwood uh, writes to Screwtape, and uh, what we're meant to understand is that he's quite positive about how his patient's going. Um, because he has great hopes that his patient's religious phase is dying away um, because he's going through a bit of a dry patch in his, in his life. And Worm, uh, Screwtape writes this, um, uh, My dear Wormwood, so you have great hopes that your patient's religious phase is dying away, have you? I always thought the training college had gone to pieces since they put old slub glob at, at the head of it. Anyway. And now I am sure... Has no one ever told you about the law of undulation? Um, you understand that this is a, a kind of imaginative entry into this world, um, but the screw tape, this senior devil goes on to talk about the, this law of undulation, the fact that um, as humans, as created beings, we do go through natural kind of ups and downs. And he writes this, The dryness and dullness through which your patient is now going are not, as you fondly suppose, your workmanship. They are merely a natural phenomenon which will do us no good unless you make a good use of it. A bit hard to get your head around because you kind of try to put yourself in the position of um, um, the evil spiritual powers to understand how that's going on. Um, but do you get the point? He's saying there's a kind of natural dryness and dullness um, through which all humans as created beings go. And uh, the senior devil is telling to his junior devil, you have to make good use of it, but they're not actually... That's just a natural phenomenon. Helpful, I think, to keep in mind those kind of writers when we're thinking about prayerlessness. Some, there's, there's a complex question. Uh, there are some cases that are um, very complicated... Uh, there are others that are just your normal ups and downs in the Christian life. We, ever, we all go through dry patches. It is a complex question. But having said all of that, what we're going to focus on today uh, is how the Bible frames the spiritual causes of our prayerlessness. The spiritual causes. Um, if you are with us last week, we saw the opening chapters of the Bible, of Genesis 1, this beautiful, incredible... Um, picture that is painted of humanity created for intimate and face-to-face -face relationship with God, the God who loves them. Uh, it's this beautiful picture of peace and goodness, humanity, male and female, living in perfect relationship with each other, perfect relationship with the world around them and perfect relationship with God. Um, but it doesn't last long. That's what we read. Steve read for us earlier. 
Uh, we read in Genesis 3 this account, this tragic, catastrophic account of the fall, where the first humans, Adam and Eve, turn from the God who made them. Uh, it sets off the whole rest of the Bible's story, really, this, this catastrophic event. Uh, and what you see just flowing out of this turning away from God uh, is in the place of life and peace. Now you get death and conflict. In the place of humble trust, where these people were created to live in humble trust with the one who created them, you get cynicism and self-reliance. You get that through as we, as we journey through. So um, if you have your Bibles open, it would be good to turn to Genesis 3. It will be on the screen as well. Um, Satan appears out of nowhere, as if out of nowhere. He's pictured as a serpent and he sneaks into God's good world. And you notice how this fall comes about as you read through this chapter. Satan begins to plant these seeds of distrust into these humans, these seeds of cynicism, really, into their hearts. So you can see there, he says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now that's interesting, isn't it? Can you see how Satan is already twisting the truth here? Um, God never said that. God never said that they couldn't eat from any tree in the garden. God created a world of absolute abundance and blessing with just one tree that they weren't to eat from. But already Satan wants to kind of, he wants to paint God as this miserly, untrustworthy, someone who doesn't really have your good in mind. Did God really say you mustn't eat from the trees? The woman uh, then sets Satan straight, verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And this is interesting. She adds something in. Maybe Satan is kind of, his distrust and is rubbing off on her. And you must not touch it. Um, God never said that either. But they're kind of, uh, you can see the seeds of distrust starting to come. You must not eat of it and you must not touch it or you will die. And you see what Satan does next. He wants Eve, and later on we find out that Adam's standing there too with Eve as this conversation's going on. He wants them to, to view God with the cynic's heart. He wants them to kind of see through God to see his real motive about what's going on. That's what a cynic does. He sees The cynic sees kind of power plays everywhere. And Satan wants them to think that God's no different. His command to not eat from that tree wasn't really for your good, wasn't really for your protection. God hasn't been honest with you. He's really actually, this is what Satan, see what Satan says, he's really actually just trying to protect himself from you as his rivals. Verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see how Satan is twisting this scene and trying to get these humans to 
move from a place of humble, receptive obedience and trust to this kind of cynical distrust. Oh, yeah. Yeah, God, re- God isn't actually... His, his, his command isn't really for my good. There's something more going on here. God knows that when I eat this, I'll actually be like him. And you can't live in dependence on that kind of a God. You can't really trust him if this is true. And last week we saw this kind of fundamental reality about humanity that the Bible paints, that all of us exist as receivers. We receive life, we receive purpose, we receive our identity. But sin says, no, you you just can't live like that. To live like that is weak, it's foolish. And the ones who really see what's going on here, they're the takers, not the receivers. Uh, The ones who don't live dependent on God, but who strive to be God. So they reject their created reality. They reject their dependence on God. They reject their identity as receivers from God. And they take. They take the fruits and the results are catastrophic. It resounds through the whole rest of the Bible's story and we, it resounds through the whole, all of humanity's story. It resounds through the whole world today. Our relationships become corrupted um, from this moment. Um, Adam and Eve's relationship to the world is corrupted and decaying. The relationship with each other starts to corrode uh, and be filled with a same kind of distrust. And most fundamentally, though, the relationship with God um, that we've looked at. Um, the way that one writer sums it up like this, I think this is a very helpful quote. The great lie of life is that you can grasp power and control and create your own life of meaning. The fruit of this foolishness is prayerlessness. See what he's saying? The great lie of life is that you can grasp power and control. That's what Adam and Eve were doing. They were grasping their own, seeking to create their own life. The fruit of that is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness is forgetting who you are, that you are not on your own, isolated and alone, but live your life in him, through him, And with him. Sorry, it's up on the screen there. Prayerlessness is believing that you are more than dust and that time will bend to your will. Prayerlessness is always the fruit of idolatry. You get what that's saying? This um, distrust and cynicism that seeps into the garden with this snake ends up twisting these first humans so that they reject their stance of humility and dependence upon God and they instead see themselves as takers, people who create their own life and meaning. And that really is at the heart of why it is that we don't pray. You see this play out through the Old Testament. Um, 
God amazingly persists with these humans, with humanity. Uh, He persists with his world. Uh, We we saw that actually even in Genesis 3. Um, If you picked it up as we read through, you saw uh, this glimmer of grace in the midst of this tragedy, this glimmer of really good news um, that God would send one. He promises one who would come from Eve's line who would crush the serpent, who would, who would not listen to his lies. Um, and you, soon you find that that blessing, as you read through the Bible story, that blessing is going to come through one family, the family of Abraham, uh, that ends up becoming the nation of Israel. Um, the tragedy, as you read through the Old Testament story, though, is that this same dynamic that we see in Genesis 3 just plays itself out over and over again. Instead of the kind of humble and thankful dependence on God that all people were made for. Instead of that, this kind of reliance on the God who saved them, who tenderly cared for them, over and over, Israel don't trust his goodness. They think that they can do life better on their own and they turn to the false gods of the nations around them. Uh, There's one place where this is really, I think, strikingly put. There's lots of places through the Old Testament, but towards the end of the Old Testament story, the prophet of Jeremiah, prophet Jeremiah speaks about this like this. This is what the Lord says. Um, This is written to uh, people facing um, exile. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the Lord did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and look, send a Kedar and observe closely. See if there's been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. such a powerful image isn't it here is God the one who brought them tenderly out of Egypt and made them his people gave them his law the the living water that's always there and yet they have forsaken him and dug their own broken cisterns that can't hold water deep within humanity's hearts is a distrust of God ever since the fall a cynicism towards him that runs so deep that means we will turn to just about anything else to satisfy us. 
uh, to give us the peace and meaning that we crave. For Israel, it was the false gods of the nations around them. Um, and what, what's really sobering about this story, and as you read through Jeremiah, you kind of pick this up, what's really sobering is um, they kept up, actually, their religious observance. Um, but their hearts were far from God. Their hearts were drawn away to these false idols. Um, and then you get that image of God as this spring of living water. He's right there. He's available, and yet they're scrambling around trying to cobble together their own broken systems. It is, it's meant to be a kind of ridiculous scene. We're meant to hear that and think, that's unbelievable. <laughs> Who could do that? Who could do that? Well, I could do that. <laughs> you could do that. I see it at work in me. Um, there are times when in my anxieties I'll turn to just about anything else other than God. Um, it plays out in all different sorts of ways. You know, you can, maybe this resonates with you, you can just stew over it. <laughs> um, uh, you, can make, you can just stew over it and try and make your own plans to fix it by yourself, thinking that you can fix things on your own. Often, though, it's taking good gifts and then trying to make them do what only God can do for me. A good book, a movie, social media. Rather than kind of just receive these things with thankfulness, I all too easily look to them to distract me and to give me a sense of control. And when that happens, I move from being a receiver of good gifts um, to kind of latching on to them, trying to get from them what only God can give me. That's when I'm digging my broken systems. When I have God right there, when he calls me to cast all my burdens on him, knowing that he cares for me. But we all have them. What about you? What are your broken systems? What are the things or the people that you turn to to give you what only God can give you? Um, if you're a Christian, you are in a fundamentally different position to those Old Testament Israelites that, are in, or that Jeremiah was talking to. Uh, and we'll, we'll focus more on this next week. You, you have the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. You have the precious gift of his Spirit, um, and next week, hopefully, we'll see the incredible difference that that makes and the blindingly good news that that is. But being a Christian in this fallen world doesn't take away your struggle with idolatry. Um, until the new creation, it will always be there. Satan's cynical voice will continue to whisper into your hearts that you can't really trust God. That he doesn't, he doesn't really have your best interests at heart when he says, tells you to do this thing. That you need something else. You need someone else to really, to really satisfy you. To really bring rest to your weary soul. Um, so this does play itself out in the Christian life. I, I've, I've found this diagram, I'm going to show you a diagram that I've just found incredibly helpful myself in thinking this through, uh, picturing what this look, might look like as we go on in the Christian life. Um, all of us here are at different kind of points 
in our journey with Christian things. Some of us are very new Christians, some of us are not yet Christians, others have been Christians for many years. Um, but this diagram I've just found very helpful. It's from a book called A Praying Life uh, by someone called Paul Miller. We don't have copies at the back, um, unfortunately, but there is a sign-up sheet that you can put your name down if you'd like us to order you a copy. But I've just found this very helpful. Uh, we'll see how we go. So this is uh, your life. This is the, the kind of timeline of your life. And if you're a Christian, there's a moment at which you are, you, you are converted. You're brought into God's, um, God's kingdom. Um, and and uh, what Miller in this book describes is, as you grow as a Christian, there's two things that you grow in your awareness of. Um, you grow in your awareness of God's holiness. You grow in your awareness of his majesty, his awesomeness, his white-hot purity. And you also grow in your awareness of your sinfulness as you grow as a Christian. Uh, and you can see that guy, and, and those two things, as you, as you um, keep going as a Christian, those, those, uh, that, that grows, those awareness, that awareness. And you can see as, um, when you're converted... Um, perhaps you don't have as, as great a sense of those two things, but the cross bridges that gap for you. You see Jesus' death in your place for your sin that, that brings you into renewed relationship with the holy God. Uh, and it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. But what can happen is what can happen over time. Um, the cross stays the same size in your spiritual landscape. And perhaps you grow in your holiness, uh, grow, grow in your understanding of God's holiness. Um, when that happens, uh, this is, Miller points this out in this book, very helpfully, I think, um, we, we fill the gaps ourselves. We fill the gaps there. Um, up the top, as we grow in awareness of God's holiness, we fill that gap with moralism with self-justification with legalism with pride this is uh, what happens to us when uh, we grow in our awareness of god's holiness and we know that we need the cross but we tell ourselves well the gospel is it's good for when you begin the christian life but then you need to move on to other deeper things better things uh, you need to move on to law basically you need, need to move on to these five steps um, or whatever it is, we fill the gaps. Um, the, when that takes root in our life, it's not pretty, um, and it can lead to um, real ugliness in our own lives. Um, on the other hand, we might grow an awareness of our sinfulness, and this is what can happen, and we can flip between these, can't we? <laughs> Uh, if uh, we, we fill in the gaps as we grow in the awareness of our sinfulness but then we think well the cross it was good for me when I, was, when I first became a Christian but my sin is too bad I keep sinning uh, I, 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 I cannot see that Jesus' blood covers all of that and so that can lead you into guilt and fear and insecurity and shame and despair. The outworking of all of that is there's really small need to pray. Um, either because you are working it out yourself 
Um, you've, you know, you've kind of accepted Jesus, sure, but now you're, you're on to the, the real meaty things and that's all up to you. Uh, that's the top half. Or because you've just given up. You've just given up. You don't actually trust God anymore um, to, to deal with your sin. It's too great. And uh, you've bought into the lie of the devil that says your sin ought to make you run from God. That's what the first humans did, Adam and Eve. They, when God came into the garden, they hid. Uh, and that's what people do ever since instead of running to him for his forgiveness. There's little need to pray. What we need, and what I've just found so helpful, is as we grow in our awareness of God's holiness, as we grow in our awareness of God's sinfulness, what we need is that the cross might grow ever, ever bigger in our own life. Ever bigger. Which gets rid of moralism and self-justification and legalism and pride because it says... It's all of God's grace. Don't kid yourself that somehow because uh, you've managed to do all of these things that you're more worthy to God. You're no more worthy to God now than you were, you ever have been. He loves you not because of the goodness within you but because of his great love for you. It gets rid of fear and guilt and shame and insecurity and despair uh, because it shows us that there is no sin there is no sin that Jesus' blood does not cover and that he does not free us from through the cross. And the output of all of this is a huge need to pray. A huge need to pray. When we see just how awesome God is, when we become aware of our own sin. And we don't fill those gaps with other things where we fill those gaps with what God has done for us at the cross. That's what fuels a life of prayer. Um, this, from this book, listen, you hear this from, from Paul Miller. It's a lengthy kind of quote, but again, I think helpful. Uh, he writes about his own struggles and his own kind of um, real inabilities with prayer and it just was getting really depressed about this and he writes my inability was actually my door to God in fact God wanted me to be depressed about myself and encouraged about his son the gospel uses my weakness as the door to God's grace that's how grace works less mature Christians have little need to pray when they look at their hearts which they seldom do which they rarely do they seldom see jealousy they are barely aware of their impatience. Instead, they are frustrated by all the slow people they keep running into. Less mature Christians are quick to give advice. There's no complexity in their worlds because the answers are simple. Just do what I say and your life will be easier. I know all this because the they I've been talking about is actually me. Yep. <laughs> yeah. He goes on. Surprisingly, mature Christians feel less mature on the inside. When they hear Jesus say, apart from me you can do nothing, they're not in agreement. They reflect on all the things they have done without Jesus, which have become nothing. Mature Christians are keenly aware that they can't raise their kids. It's a no-brainer. Even if they're perfect parents, they still can't get inside their kids' hearts. That's why strong Christians pray more. Miller goes on to talk about this whole idea of power and strength and 
Um, he kind of turns it on its head a little bit. There's a, further on, he rewrites this. Power in prayer is not this kind of um, heroic uh, kind of thing that sometimes it gets talked about. Power in prayer comes from being in touch with your weakness. To teach us how to pray, Jesus told stories of weak people who knew they couldn't do life on their own. The persistent widow and the friend at midnight get access, not because they are strong, but because they are desperate. And this line stuck with me for so long, I just think it's so helpful. Learned desperation is at the heart of a praying life. Uh, It may be that hearing God's word this morning and reflecting on um, your sin has made you a little desperate. Uh, And if that's so, then that's exactly where you need to be. Desperation that doesn't flee from God in a distrusting and cynical heart but flees to him is at the heart of a praying life. I just want to finish by reflecting a little bit about um, the habit that Christians have always had of confessing our sins in prayer. Um, Sometimes it makes some of us a bit uneasy uh, to do that. Um, And uh, I have some sympathy with that. So There's some Christians who seem to delight in other people's sin, and that's wrong. Sin should be grieved, not delighted in. But that's not what genuine confession is about. It's not not a kind of an exercise in self-hatred or condemnation. It's simply an exercise in reality. Um, If you're not a Christian yet, here this morning with us, um, the first step in becoming a Christian is actually to acknowledge this reality, to openly, humbly, just lay it all before God, to admit that you have ignored your maker, that you have turned to other things to give you what only he can to receive and trust the wonderful news that Jesus covers the gap between your sin and God's holiness. That's what it means to become a Christian, but it's what it means to go on as a Christian too. Repentance is not just the start of the Christian life, it is the whole of the Christian life. Um, And one reason I think that is, is because confession, when we confess our sins, it is a key way that we learn desperation. Uh, God kind of, and Miller in the book sort of goes into some different ways in which God teaches us this. He, and, and he helps us to see trial and struggle and suffering is actually um, one way that God can actually teach us our dependence upon him, this learned desperation. Um, but alongside that, Confessing our sins together as God's people and and on our own in private is actually a key way that we do this, that we learn desperation. Uh, It is the way out of cynicism and self-dependence because it reminds you um, not to depend on yourself. Uh, It reminds you not to depend on yourself but to turn to the one who made you, who loves you, who is good, who can be trusted. It is the way back to 
to trust. Uh, it's kind of a tune-up with reality for us when we confess our sins. There's a great song we sometimes sing as a line, Tune my heart to sing your grace. Um, think of confessing your sin a bit like that. It's tuning your heart to reality, um, but not leaving it there, bringing that to the cross, seeing the cross, filling the gaps, so that you might sing God's grace. We've covered a lot of ground, and next week, as I said, we're going to think more and could kind of go into detail about the difference Jesus and what he's done on the cross makes for our prayer life. Um, come back next week, and uh, uh, um, yeah, but uh, what we're going to do now is I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to leave a time for us, each of us, to individually spend time in prayer with God. And maybe for you, that's an opportunity to bring your own need to him, your own sin. Uh, confess it to him. And then we're going to sing a song that really is a confession um, uh, to finish up with. So let's pray together, shall we? Oh God, we do confess that we turn to broken cisterns. When you are right there, the spring of living water who will always satisfy, who will never fail. Lord, keep our hearts from these idols that will not satisfy. Help us to tune our hearts to the song of your grace. Father, keep us from, as we go on in the Christian life, either becoming proud or despairing, but help us to see the cross bigger and bigger. Uh, help us to be filled with awe at your majesty and filled with thankfulness at your grace. Um, break through our cynicism, Lord. Um, give us hearts that yearn for you. And Lord, may that translate in lives of deep and dependent and constant prayer. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.